Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode. And today I'm really excited to dive into this topic. We are really going to talk more in depth about autism and understanding some of the causes of autism, as well as understanding different environmental triggers like nutrition and how that comes into play. So this is going to definitely be a more science-based episode. In a previous episode, I alluded to this concept of epigenetics. So we're going to dive into that as well today. With me on the podcast, I have Dr. Steve Cheney. He is currently Professor Emeritus at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And at the time of his retirement, he held the title of Distinguished Professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics and the Department of Nutrition. So he is a research scientist, and he also taught all about human metabolism and nutrition. He also is a best-selling author. So he is the type of person that he has that strong research background. But in my conversation with him, what I was really excited about is how he can break it down for you and make this really understandable and digestible. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well being as a parent, supporting your non autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So, Dr. Cheney, I'm so excited to have you here today. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And I guess your introduction was wonderful. I appreciate that. And I guess what I really want the people listening to this podcast to understand is it gives me a unique perspective. Because I was a research scientist, I understand what makes a good clinical study. And because I taught human metabolism and nutrition to medical students, I understand the role that nutrition plays in our metabolism and in our health. And the other thing I just like to do is bring a touch of common sense to these discussions. That's often missing. Yeah, so true. And one of the things I know we talked about ahead of this episode too, is there's so much confusion out there. We're in an age where we can get everything at our fingertips, but it's also understanding what sources of information you can trust versus which ones are maybe more fads or trends or sharing misinformation. So I'm really excited for you to be able to break some of this down for us today. Okay. So great. And I'm talking about confusion and talking about sources. Yeah. Again, I'm very strong on sources. You can find almost everything, most of it incorrect on the internet. But if you look at it, just for this portion, I use the Mayo Clinic, the NIH as good sources to pull together the complexity. So what they talk about is that autism is a mixture of genetics, environment, certain risk factors. So if we just go in a little bit more depth here, genetics. And when I was a young scientist and 
we were doing the human genome project, sequencing the genome. Our model was diseases like sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis, where a single gene caused the disease. I mean, we thought once we had the genetic code, we would have the solution to all diseases. Turns out it's much more complicated than that. Most diseases, and autism is certainly one of those, is caused by multiple genes that each has a small impact. So what that means for you is the genes that really predispose to autism in your child are probably different than any other child or most other children. In terms of environmental factors, the Mayo Clinic and NIH mentioned viral infections, medications, complications during pregnancy, air pollutants. Other sources mention pesticides, junk foods in our diet, food allergens such as gluten or dairy. And I'll say that none of these has been proven. And by the way, gluten is only a concern if your child is gluten sensitive. Right. Otherwise, forget it. Same thing with dairy. Risk factors. So again, what are the Mayo Clinic and the NIH say about that? Risk factors like things like family history, other people in your family lineage who have had children with autism, met and older parents, extremely low birth weight, and certain genetic conditions that affect brain development. But other sources suggest things like autoimmune disorders, maternal obesity, diabetes. All of these are potential, all of these interact. So the question is what environmental triggers, what environment and risk factors trigger autism in your child depends on the genes predisposed to autism in your child. And that's going to be different for every single child. So the take-home lesson is simply, don't believe everything you hear or read about autism. And by the way, a really important take-home lesson is it's not your fault. It's so easy to feel guilty about this. Oh, if I'd only changed. You have no idea whether that's even had any role in autism in your child. Yeah. And I think it is so complex. And I think a lot of times mainstream media wants to water it down to one thing causes this. And that's where a lot of the parent guilt and shame come in is feeling like, oh, no, did I do this one thing? And I remember there's a whole thing going around right now about acetaminophen and or Tylenol causing autism. And you see Facebook ad after Facebook ad popping up. And I had a parent that I work with being like, did I do this? And it's like, it's not that simple. And I think this is where misinformation can spread what like wildfire. But there's so many different factors. And I love too, in the environmental piece, you really talked about too, that none of these are proven. And also just because they exist, touch on real quick, I guess, for the audience, the difference between correlation versus causation. Well, so it's easy to show a correlation between uh, one thing and another, but to prove cause and effect, you have to do a whole different level of clinical study. But let me give you a simplistic example. Suppose you did a study and you found that there was a correlation between eating ice cream and drowning deaths. You might say, oh, well, I should never feed my children ice cream again. They might drown. Well, you think a little bit about this. So when do we eat ice when do we eat ice cream? We eat more ice cream in the summer. And what do we do more of in the summer? We swim more in the summer, which increases our risk of drowning. So again, 
That would be an association, but there is no cause and effect between ice cream and drowning. So that's just a very simple way to understand it. I love that. I love that. So let's now dive into, we're talking about how complex this is. Let's dive into this then concept of epigenetics where environment and genes all come together. What does that look like and how does that impact autism? And it's fascinating because the scientists like went through this sort of scientific revolution because when I was a young scientist, we thought our genes were our destiny. But what we know now is our genes can be chemically modified and those modifications can turn them on or off. And very simply put, that's the science of epigenetics. We know things like diet, exercise, obesity, starvation, environmental factors affect these modifications. So this means even if your child has genes predisposing to autism, they can be turned on or off by factors, some of which are under our control, some of which aren't but none of which you could predict. Yeah, and I think about there's a huge body of literature on the younger siblings of autistic children and how they have a significantly increased risk. They're saying they've estimated that it's as high as one in five will also have autism, which compared to typical prevalence of one in 36 is really elevated. And we know from that we've been able to deduce that there is this genetic role, but it's also interesting in thinking about this epigenetics and how for some of these younger siblings, they actually might have the genes, but are those genes being turned on and are they showing in terms of full symptomatology? And sometimes there's a whole spectrum for autism. And so sometimes, yes, younger siblings may have autism or older siblings may have autism, but be a totally different place on the spectrum. And again, this is where all those other factors can come into play. Absolutely. Or there's also this terminology that's come up in the literature of looking a lot of times at parents where, okay, they have an autistic child and there's some presumption there, then they have, there's some genetic component, but maybe the parents themselves aren't meeting diagnostic criteria for autism, but they're having some symptoms of it. And so they've talked about the broader autism phenotype and, you know, how it's like the gene is partially presenting in some way. Absolutely. Another thing that's important that I didn't talk about is the gut brain access. Oh, um, yeah. And that's, You probably have heard this before, but our gut bacteria affect our health and they affect how our brain functions. So, and guess what? Our gut bacteria are influenced by diet, exercise, obesity, starvation, environmental factors. So to the complexity of genes, environment, risk factors, epigenetics, we also have to add gut bacteria. And it's, it's no wonder that it's so hard for people to understand the causes of autism. Absolutely. And we're going to dive in a little later in the episode about some of the ways that you can start to address this and more of the application for your family. We just wanted to give the basis of how complex this is and the role of epigenetics and the gut-brain access and all of it. So I'm curious then, Dr. Cheney, for you, How can doctors make conflicting statements then about the cause and treatments for autism and each claim then their viewpoint is supported by clinical studies? You see this a lot in the field where one's like, 
yes, this is proven or evidence-based, and then you'll get a contradictory opinion. So I'd love to hear that. And we really do our best to teach evidence-based medicine and students when we take in medical school. But I think there's a concept that scientists understand better than most physicians, and that is that studies conflict. And we sometimes we can say, oh, this study was poorly designed, it had this flaw or that flaw, but sometimes we just never know. So a good scientist based their opinion on the totality of multiple studies. But then they're, and I jokingly called them the Dr. Strange loves of the world. They like to cherry pick the studies that support their hypothesis. So there may be a study out there that says something that supports their hypothesis. They ignore all the others. So that's part of the problem. But there's another thing that you really need to understand. This is sort of, this is a truth. This is an Achilles heel of even good clinical studies. And that's they report averages. None of us are average. So, so let me give you an example. You may have heard, well, maybe not. Most of you are probably too young for this. But in the 60s and 70s, there was something called the Feingold diet. And that was for children with ADHD. And basically, it was a diet that eliminated junk foods and certain other foods. And when scientists put clinical studies on it, they concluded, well, no, it's not true. But if you actually looked a little closer, 10% of the children in those studies were benefited by the fine gold diet. 90% weren't. So the scientific community concluded it was ineffective. But for the 10% who it worked, it was really effective. And that's just the business of averages. We tend to look at averages. So one like the take-home lessons from this is don't be strange, don't be swayed by all the strange loves of the world, Dr. Strange Loves. I mean, they know you're desperate for a solution. So they prey on you, basically. They use podcasts, websites, social media to suck you in. They use metabolic mumbo-jumbo that sounds so compelling, tell you it's backed by clinical studies. Then they sell you their books, their diets, their pills, their potions. They're modern-day snake oil salesmen. But also, don't be swayed by the absolutes of the medical community because they look at average, and your autistic child is not average. He or she's an individual. So what works best for clinical studies might not work best for your child. Yeah. Oh, I love these the point in the balance there too, that it's not just saying we only listen to the research studies. We want to take in different perspectives. And one that's really interesting to think about is there has been a large surge in terms of autism of listening to autistic voices as well and their lived experience. And that's something that's not reflected in the research literature as well. And we know that's really important, that we can learn helpful strategies and thought processes from those who have the lived experience with autism. They Looking at averages within a research study aren't going to give us. And we just, research is also slow. I mean, I think that's something for the audience to keep in mind. It's not like a study is developed and then quickly published. It takes a long time to acquire funding, to set up the study, to collect all the data, to analyze it, then to get it published in a peer-reviewed journal. I got to see how slow that process was firsthand. 
Yes, and when you talk about shared experiences, those are can be extremely valuable. But remember, they may not apply to your child. Yeah. So it's good to be a little adventurous. Try, if you hear something that sounds really good, a number of parents are saying this worked for them, you can try it, but don't just assume that it's going to work. Yeah. And I often see that sometimes parents will try what other people recommend that worked for their children. And then, you know, it's not working for your child. An immediate shame kicks in of like, you know, what am I doing wrong? And it just be might be that strategy isn't effective for your child. So I think that is also important to keep in mind. But this piece of data actually came to me, and I might not be quoting it exactly correctly, but it's something like 17 years by the time your research idea is conceptualized and makes it its way into clinical practice. And so this is also something to keep in mind, like, a lot of medical professionals who aren't also involved in research, one, they don't always have a lot of time to update themselves and they're waiting for things to actually be published and making kind of a splash a lot of times before they're in the know. Well, and part of that 17-year delay is after the study's been published, before they're adopted by the particular medical society that advises those physicians. Yes, that's a long problem. That's a long process. It is. Awesome. Well, this is helpful just to understand the causes and where this information comes from. Let's move now into a little bit more of the application piece of this. So I'm going to give some quick context. Way back when, a couple decades ago, and if you listen to the podcast frequently, you may know that I grew up with an autistic brother. And in one of the episodes, I think the one with my mom, we talked about how he actually was on a gluten casein-free diet. And the reason, it's interesting, he actually does have insensitivities to both of those. But the reason being is because that diet was considered like the cure for autism. And now we've definitely moved away from that. And I think what's going to be interesting to discuss here is that diet does have some impact. So how do you navigate all of this information that's out there about diet and really knowing then what is best for your child? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Well, so here's where some common sense really kicks in. And I think we will focus too much on a diet that's going to cure autism. There is no such diet. So let's talk about common sense. There is, so there's no magic diet that's going to cure autism. But what if we chose diets that kind of opposed autism symptoms or avoided diets that reinforced autism symptoms? So let me give you just a couple of examples of study. There was a study published in Britain a few years ago. And what they found is groups consuming processed foods were 58% more likely to suffer from depression and anxiety than a group consuming whole foods, whole and processed foods. 
Similar study in New Zealand. Now, this was the same group of people eating different diets on different days and reporting what they experienced. But this group felt reported feeling calmer, happier, and more energetic on the days when they ate more fruits and vegetables than on the days when they ate more processed foods. So the question is, would you want your autistic child on a diet that's likely to help them feel calmer and happier or a diet that's more likely to help them feel, make them feel depressed and anxious? It's not curing autism, but what else is diet doing? Sometimes we have to just throw that common sense in there. But with that in mind, let's talk about foods that may increase or decrease symptoms. And again, there's a lot of information out there. But in general, whole food diets, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, seeds, fatty fish, eggs, chicken, lean beef, but whole foods, all of those are, all of those tend to be beneficial. That's a good, healthy diet. Not going to cure autism, but it's a good, healthy diet. Gives your child what they need to cope better with what they're experiencing. Now, noting, why do I talk so much about fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, grains, all of that sort of stuff? Well, they all have fiber. And this is a really important point. What we call fiber, our healthy gut bacteria call food. And different healthy gut bacteria like different kinds of fiber. So we want to eat as much of these fiber-containing foods as possible to provide our gut and provide to really have the best healthy gut bacteria. And again, that's going to help the gut-brain axis. So that's part of what's going on here. So foods you need to minimize are highly refined and processed foods, artificial ingredients, artificial sweeteners, colors, preservatives, certainly sodas and sugary processed foods. I know that's hard. I know every child is different, and this is where Dr. Day's advice comes in and helping you cope with this and helping you work with your children. Of course, avoid gluten and dairy if your child is sensitive to those. So those are just the simple advice. Yeah, and I would say for children that are that have spoken language too you might even talk to them and help educate them on this and how these foods will make them feel better and i think having this conversation can be really helpful i do want to caveat one of the things we know is really common in autistic kids is picky eating and so this is definitely what is optimal. And so I do have a couple podcast episodes in terms of supporting your child through picky eating, increasing exposure, all of that in ways to introduce food. So one is with Dr. Patty Ann Ford, and then another one, we touch on it with occupational therapist, Dr. Sam Goldman. So those could be some good resources that if you're still in the picky eating stage, and there might also, and we're going to talk about supplementation here shortly, but there also might be ways to get some of these things in that still fit within your child's restrictive diet. But I think trying to make the move to some of these, you could see the ultimate benefit. And also thinking about what I would say, Dr. Cheney, in terms of symptoms, I think a lot of times what we might see increases and decreases with are some of those like co-occurring symptoms, things like 
tantrums or their mood or feeling anxious rather than potentially the core symptoms of autism. But I also think that all of these things go hand in hand. So we might not, for example, see reductions necessarily in your child's stimming behavior or their sensory sensitivity. But we also might, if they're feeling less anxious, if they're feeling less on edge, then they might need those things less to cope and to regulate themselves. So so that's really, I'm not an expert on autism, like the people you invited on your call. But again, my common sense approach is make small incremental changes. Yeah. If you've got a picky eater, don't try and push everything on them at once. Small incremental changes, see what they'll accept and what they won't. Get the whole family involved. It can't be a diet just for them because any child is going to resist that. But again, getting back to your point, it's easy to be misled. Hope springs eternal. So you may think, oh my goodness, this looks like it's getting better. This is where they really benefit with working with you. So you can help them provide them with reliable metrics for real change because they're going to be different for every child. And you're the one with the experience to help guide your, your parents through that. Absolutely. Yeah. But I also love having your expertise here and really breaking this down. Any other advice for you that comes to mind before we switch to supplementation in terms of the application of this? No, I think with some of the things I was going to talk about, you talked about much more ably. So I think just a few comments I made, just to add a little bit of flavor to it. I think we're ready to move on. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So let's now move into supplementation because this is a big thing in the field of like different supplements. Again, some of them come from this well, this cures autism, which we know is not the case. But then some of them too, you hear different recommendations. And so how do you begin to navigate the supplementation information? Well, there are a lot of myths out there, but let me just start with what I think are probably the two biggest myths. And that's not just autism. This sort of circulates for just about anything, any disease you can think of. But one is methylfolate versus folic acid. So in reality, there's no evidence that methylfolate is superior to folic acid. In every clinical study in which they've been compared head to head, they worked equally well. Even in children who, even in people who were methylene tetrahydrofolate deficient. So there's no evidence that methylfolate has any advantage over folic acid. Methyl B12 is just a, it's ridiculous because if you understand how it's metabolized, the methyl group is pulled off of the B12 before it can get into the cell. So that methyl group never makes it into the cell. So that's just, it's just a more expensive form of B12. Mm. That's all it is. But if you look at the literature out there for supplements, it may help. And remember, again, none of these are proven. The ones that may help, best evidence is for vitamin B12, B6. Those are good for brain health. And particularly if your child may be deficient in those, depends on their diet. If they're picky eaters, sometimes that happens. Magnesium, probiotics, again, gut brain health axis here. And omega-3s, particularly DHA. So our neurons have 
have fatty acids in them. And a large proportion of the fatty acids that encase our neurons contain DHA. So it's very important that children get enough of that. And again, that's something that's often missing in the American diet. But again, as I said, none of these can be considered proven because every child with autism is unique. Some may be helped by one supplement, some by another. You know, you got to work, figure out for your own child. But we go back to common sense. As you said, autistic children are often picky eaters. A gold multivitamin makes sense, especially if you can find one that they like. You know, as for other supplements, my recommendations are the same for dietary changes. Sort of try them. See what works, what doesn't work. And if they don't work, don't waste your money. And of course, work with you in establishing good metrics so you're not so you're really making good decisions when you're selecting the supplements. Yeah, because I will say even as a clinician, my brain goes to, though, how do you know if these things are working? Because behaviorally, I what comes to mind is basically fish oil has shown a small effect for ch children with ADHD. And that can be something that I've seen pediatricians like omega-3 fish oil will recommend but we also talk about, and I remember writing this when I would do ADHD evals in my clinical training of like, you might not notice behavioral changes in result to this. Like it's a significant effect, but it's a very small effect. So how do parents know, and I, I'm even wondering as a clinician, if these supplements are working? Well, and again, it's, you really hit it the nail right in the head with what you said a minute ago. Now, for things like DHA, part of it depends on what the diet's like. If the diet's deficient in DHA, child's much more likely to experience a benefit than if your child's already getting enough DHA. So, you know, that, that variation is going to, but that's also the individual variation. So you have to base it on the symptoms. Again, this is where I think your experience and guidance come into play because it's easy to look at short-term improvements or maybe symptoms that aren't important. The question is, are these improving core symptoms that you want to see, you want to see change in your child? And is this not just a passing fad, but is this something that really stands the test of time? Yeah. That's true. And yeah, I guess thinking clinically, there are sometimes these subtle things. Like I've seen kids be on magnesium, for example, to help with sleep. And it's subtle changes, but those subtle changes can have such a big impact for a family system. So that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any specific supplements that you recommend? Well, I recommend Shackley supplements, but again, full confession here. My wife is a Shackley representative. But what you need to know is when she was first looking at the company, I did a thorough investigation of the science behind their products and the quality behind their products. What I found was interesting. I found that Shackley used quality controls that were complementary to the pharmaceutical industry. And at that time, I assumed every supplement company must do that. My surprise was that most don't. So they really don't know if their products are pure or not, mm. if their products deliver 
what they're supposed to deliver. I also looked at, at clinical studies, and I found that Chackley did clinical studies to test the safety and efficacy of their products. And again, my biggest surprise was to find out that most companies don't do that. So that they have no idea what their products are safe or effective. It's also because of Suzanne's position in Shackley, it really enabled me to get a behind the scenes, a peek behind the curtain, if you will. I've reviewed their quality control specifications. It's a huge list. I've inspected their quality control facilities. They're state of the art. I've reviewed their published studies, currently 150 and continuing. But I've also, more importantly, I've talked with their scientists, asked them the hard questions, and been impressed with the answers I've received. So what about other companies? Well, I know that most companies fall far short of these standards. Even worse, you can't believe what they say. I've seen companies on their websites that talk about their extensive quality controls until the FDA shut them down because none of that was true. I've seen companies brag about the clinical proof behind their products until the FDA issued a cease and desist order because they had no credible evidence to back up their claims. Now, there, there are undoubtedly companies out there that come close to Shackley in terms of quality, in terms of clinical proof, but none of them are willing to grant me the same behind the scenes that peek behind the curtain. So I can't verify whether their claims are true or not. Yeah, I like chuckle to myself because I imagine when Suzanne first joined this company, like my guess is you had some initial skepticism until you could do your research and then you realize like, wow, because this is your area of knowledge. You know it in and out. And then to know that you know, it's amazing. She's aligned with a company that you also really value. And I know one of the books that you've written has been about supplements as well. So slaying the supplement myths. So I, I know this is an area of passion for yours. And I think it's really cool then how you guys were able to find that alignment through Shackley. Yes. And just so your listeners know, slaying the supplement myths, doesn't talk about Shackley products at all, but it really is the myths out there, both from the charlatans of the supplement industry and the medical professionals that really don't understand the value of supplementation. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting field and there's so many providers that don't even talk about it. And then I think being cautious in who you're getting this information from, I think can be really important. So with all your clinical knowledge and your deep dive of Shackley products and all of that, are there any, you know, to parents right now that if they were curious, maybe a few starting points and then they, I know they can also reach out and connect with Suzanne if they're interested in learning more. Well, again, just common sense, because just with foods, you don't want to overwhelm your children with too many supplements. And you want to use supplements that they're likely to enjoy, likely to take. So the product I recommend is something that Chackley calls Meology. It's personalized in a sense for children, but it's a great place to start because it provides the vitamins, the DHA, and other nutrients they need in, turn, in form of great tasting gummies, which is something kids like more better than swallowing or chewing pills. 
Now, if they like sweets and you suspect they have blood sugar swings that are reinforce some of their symptoms or maybe cause some of their symptoms, Shackley has protein shakes that are low glycemic that the kids will love. And for some of the other supplements, I meant magnesium, probiotics, and that sort of thing. Shackley has individual supplements in those areas you could test. But start with the simple first. Mm-hmm. Start with the chewable gummies that provide them the basis. Because picky eaters probably aren't getting all the nutrients they need. What I really like is this one has a gummy that provides a DHA, which is a really important nutrient. And again, if you think of blood sugar swings, try the protein. Awesome. Yeah. And we can put a link below too that they can reach out and get more information about all of that. And then I also just wanted to give a little plug and it is not autism specific, but if you have been enjoying listening and learning from Dr. Cheney today, he does have a weekly newsletter called Health Tips from the Professor. So we will be sure to put how you can get access to that. I'm actually really enjoying it. I recently learned that cranberry is an effective treatment for UTIs. And I had always wondered whether that was legit or not. So reading the newsletter myself. So it's about all kinds of topics, definitely not autism specific, but you as a parent, you can also educate yourself on some of this health information. But Dr. Cheney, before we wrap up, any kind of final thoughts that you wanted to be able to share? No, I think that pretty well does it. I think this has been a really good conversation. I will put in one thing about the cranberry. Yeah. It's not just ocean spray cranberry juice. You really want to be getting the unsweetened organic cranberry juice or cranberry concentrate, not the processed stuff. Yes, yes, exactly. But I love it. And that's important because you're right. We want people to have the right information that if they have a UTI or their kid does, that they can go to that. But thank you so, so much for being here today, sharing so much of your wisdom and your training with us to really be able to break down the causes of autism and understanding how nutrition and supplements can really support kids as they are growing. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will be back soon. Bye, y'all. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.